0: Let's hear the word of our God. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamabithea, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai, did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of king Ahasuerus, they cast per, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to king Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries." So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadathea, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month and an edict According to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy to kill and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the, dec- of the document was to be issued as a decree to, in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will, so that we might have spiritual wisdom and understanding. We ask this so that we may live a life worthy of you, pleasing you in every way, that we may bear fruit in every good work, that we would grow in our knowledge of you, that we would be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might, that we might have great patience and endurance, joyfully giving thanks to you. And we ask this in Christ's name for your glory and our good. Amen. Please be patient with what I'm about to say. Before you get mad at me, let me say it all. I think it will make sense when I get to the end. Okay? Once again, we've seen that there have been some events in our country, that have caused outrage, that have resulted in riots. And when there's another shooting of an unarmed man, because he's a different color, or the perception, anyway, is that because he's a different color skin tone, as a white person, I and many of you are tempted to thoroughly examine the facts of the case as they become more and more clear, and to somehow use this to say to those of the minority communities, see what's your problem. What we don't see is that, is what, they, or what we don't recognize is how they process it, which is very different from how we tend to process it. We look at each event on its own merit. What they tend to do is to see it within a larger context than we see it. And so they see each particular shooting as within the context of uh, the struggle that they experience for one measure of justice for all. Not two. They see it not just within uh, th- this one contemporary struggle, but it is also seen within a history of racial injustice that extends for hundreds of years. In other words, you cannot understand what's going on unless you understand the bigger picture and see it in light of the bigger picture. It's similar to what we see when we get to Esther chapter 3. If we simply look at the facts. Of chapter 3 and see this as an isolated incident, we will perhaps understand part of what's going on in Esther 3, but we really won't understand what's going on in Esther 3, because it's a part of something bigger. And if we don't take the larger context into consideration, we actually misinterpret Esther 3. just as sometimes we can misinterpret what's going on in our culture because we're only looking at one part of the picture. My big idea this morning is that the conflict between the seed and Satan often intrudes on our lives. There's a bigger picture going on. And this story is a part of that bigger picture. And we'll touch on that and get into that in a little bit. But first, I want us to recognize that God permits Satan to gain power over his people. You see, it's interesting. At the end of chapter 2, everything seems to be going well. I mean, you know, Esther is, is the queen. She has found favor with the king. Mordecai has uncovered a plot, and he therefore has gained favor with the king. And so as we turn to chapter 3, what we would expect to find is that Mordecai is promoted above everybody else, but that is not what we find. We find a, a man whom we have not seen before, who is elevated above everyone else. God, the one who placed both Mordecai and Esther where they need to be for the unfolding of this drama, uh, also, to a degree, places this last person in place for the unfolding of this drama. If you don't have Haman, you don't have the rest of this book. It's unnecessary. And in fact, you wouldn't even have this book. Because ultimately, it wouldn't matter if Esther was queen unless there was the problem of Haman. And so we see that King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agite. We are meant to go, what? This doesn't seem right. This, this seems like an injustice. This seems unfair. This doesn't seem to make sense to what's going on. But there's not just the fact that it's Haman instead of Mordecai, but the other shoe drops because Haman is an Agagite. In other words, he is an Amalekite who was related to King Agag a good faithful Jew would pick up on that immediately and go, oh boy. Okay? But we see here that Haman seemingly arises out of nowhere. Up to this point in the story, he's been irrelevant. He probably was there in the court, but now he becomes significant to what is going on. He is raised up. It's interesting that the author uses three verbs in order to emphasize what has happened here. He has been promoted. He has been advanced. His throne has been established or set above all of the other officials within the court. He has become the second most powerful man in the Persian Empire, which is the most powerful empire in the known world at that point in time. And therefore, this before unknown man named Haman is now the second most powerful world, man in the world. And if you're a Jew, that didn't bode well. This is part of a bigger conflict. And it's more than just uh, Ahasuerus or Xerxes uh, working the things here. But I think if we remember Job 1 and 2, if we remember Revelation 12 and 13, we see that there is someone else behind what goes on as well. And that is the evil one. Part of what happens in Revelation 12 and 13, of course, is the, the great serpent, the, the, the dragon, Satan from the garden, continues his war against God. And he does it by raising up from the sea, seemingly out of nothing, the beast. And then he raises up, seemingly out of nothing, the beast of the air, I mean, sorry, the earth. And so we're, we're, I think, intended to recognize that at times there are satanic powers behind the earthly rulers that we see, and I would imagine that the author of Esther would say, you got it. There's more going on here than meets the eye. It's more than just this man, Haman. He is meant to be understood, in a sense, as an antichrist. An agent of the evil one. As we look at the larger arc of Scripture, we see that since the beginning, Satan has been attacking God through his people because people bear his image. He cannot destroy God, but he'll do the next best thing. He's like a criminal in a movie. You see, he's got Jack captive, but Jack has information, and so he can't kill Jack. But he can threaten that which Jack loves, his family. And so Satan, being unable to destroy God, threatens the thing that God loves most, His people. He continually arises to destroy His people. Since Genesis 4, Satan has been trying to stop the promised seed before that seed of the woman comes and stomps his head. And so as that promise was channeled to Abraham in Genesis 12, now he begins to try and stop the seed of Abraham. And so that's what we see going on in these various times when the promise is threatened, particularly Exodus 1. The slaughter of the male children. It's not just that there are too many and they're numerous and they might revolt, but from Satan's perspective, as, as we see in Job 1, he's trying to stop the seed from destroying him. Just as we see that Herod seeking to destroy all of the children under two in Bethlehem and Judea, that's his intention. Satan's intention is to destroy the Messiah. And so, Esther becomes another event within this larger story of the conflict between the seed and the serpent. And we misunderstand it if we don't understand that. And while Satan's intention is evil, this is similar to what we see in uh, Genesis 50 when, when Joseph is talking to his brothers. The Lord intends good in this. He intends this conflict to rise to the surface at this point in time. He's been working with all of this, but his intention is good to tie up loose ends for the benefit of his people. And so God has great purposes in mind when government gains power over his people. Secondly, heavenly citizenship takes priority in practical ways. This is going to introduce a conflict, the rise of Haman. And we see that quickly, it just happens here, that all the other officials bowed down and paid homage to Haman as they were commanded by Xerxes. And there's that repetition that happens. They've There's a focus on the the bowing down and paying homage and it's interesting that it's commanded because within the the Persian court it was expected anyway. So this seems to be another example of Xerxes um, giving out a a rather useless law, but the reason it may have been given is that he knew that no one else liked Haman. (laughs) and that the only way that these others may have bowed down and paid homage to him is if it was clear, crystal clear that they would be disobeying and dishonoring the king by failing to do so. Nothing wrong with paying uh, due respect to a governmental official. We see that in Romans 13, as well as in 1 Peter. We see here as well in Romans twelve, if possible, as so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. But we see here that Mordecai is about to not live peaceably with Haman. Haman, uh, sorry, Mordecai refuses to pay proper honor to Mordecai uh, to Haman. Sorry, I keep goofing them up in my brain. Now, some people have said that this is because, uh, you know, as a faithful Jew, he should bow before no man, but if you read later on in the book of Esther, Mordecai bows before Xerxes, so it's not that. We would misinterpret this unless we see it within that context, not simply of... The seed and the serpent, but now another expression of that, a closer context, the struggle with Amalek. This passage, this book of the scriptures, only makes sense if we see it within that battle. With Amalek and so there's the conflict between the, the seed and the serpent, and within that larger story, there is among the many struggles there's Israel and Amalek and now as a as a subset of that story, we have the conflict between Mordecai and Haman and we only understand that conflict between Mordecai and Haman and and the Amaleks, uh, sorry the Amalekites, if we start at Genesis three, and we see the curse and the promised seed, and then we move again, as I mentioned earlier, to Genesis twelve with the promise of the seed being given to Abraham, and then we move to Exodus seventeen, the battle as we heard with the Amalekites who are seeking to destroy Israel and therefore the seed that has been promised. (laughs) Self-destructive, suicidal, though they don't perhaps recognize it as that. This is also mentioned in Deuteronomy 25, and let me just read briefly from that. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. Now catch that. He's preying on the weak. He's a coward. And he's a coward because he does not fear God. And so he's acting out of unbelief. He's acting um, out of the wrong fear. He's bold, even though he's a coward, and he's cutting off the tail of the people. As it continues, Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget And so here's a re-emphasis, a reminder of what God had said at the end of chapter 17 in Exodus, that there is a curse that has been placed upon Amalek, which is a reflection of the curse in Genesis 12. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And so Amalek had cursed God's people and therefore was going to get a curse just as he tried to blot out the people of God, now Amalek would be blotted out. And so we see this trace through Deuteronomy 25 up into 1 Samuel 17, where Samuel, because they have rest in the land, has been told it's time to fulfill God's promise, and he he sort of does it. He doesn't completely do it because he gets distracted by the wealth of the people. And so uh, Eli has to come and slay Agag, but we recognize because of Haman that the job still wasn't done because some relatives of Agag lived, and now one of them is in the court of the Persian government as the second most powerful man in the world. And so for Mordecai, this is not a personal issue. It's not, I don't like Haman. It's, Haman is an Amalekite. And and God has promised to blot them out. How can I bow down to one that God has promised to blot out? This is a kingdom issue. This is about how Haman is trying to live in God's kingdom while he lives in the, per- the kingdom of Persia. And so there have been other things that he's been able to go along with nicely, and it's not a problem. But now it's basically this is the line in the sand that he will not cross. This is the hill upon which he has chosen. He must die if that happens. This is similar to Jesus refusing to bow the knee to Satan in order to receive all the power during his time of testing in Matthew 4. Satan is going to bow before Jesus eventually. This conflict did not end with Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. We see it continues. Reading from the report on the North Korean persecution that has just been released, I saw this little line, Religious belief... Beliefs are seen as a threat to the loyalty demanded by the supreme leader. So anyone holding these beliefs is severely persecuted. The conflict of the kingdoms. We, We live in two kingdoms, and there are times in which they are in conflict with one another, and so we as Christians need to understand the point beyond which we cannot go. The early Christians understood this. They could not say, Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord. The early disciples knew that they could not obey the Sanhedrin uh, in, in stopping to Talking about Jesus, they needed to obey God rather than man. That there are times when those things come into conflict. And so you need to figure out, I think, from Scripture, oh, what are the hills upon which you are willing to die? I'm not sure at what point Rosa Parks decided. She was willing to go to prison rather than move to the back of the bus. I don't know. Maybe she was just too tired that day and just didn't want to be bothered. I don't know. But at some point she said, today is the day. And if I suffer, I suffer. But today is the day. You see, the problem is not just in North Korea. There is a presidential candidate who was on record saying that your Christian values must change if you are going to live in a society with abortion on demand. That candidate is saying, the government will not budge, you must budge. That doesn't matter to us so much. But it matters to doctors and nurses if they're forced to perform procedures that are against their conscience. It matters right now to pharmacists in Washington State who are being forced to sell certain medications that abort children. It's not just about baking cakes or taking pictures at weddings. It's happening. It's happening in Canada, where now people from a certain law school, because it is tied to a Christian university, cannot become lawyers. You're being told to choose between your faith and the legal profession. Just as here, some people are being told your faith. Or your profession. That is a manifestation of this conflict. So, part of what we notice here in the text is that Haman initially didn't seem to notice this. Maybe Haman was so full of himself that he didn't realize Mordecai wasn't bowing. We're not sure exactly why, but he doesn't notice. But the other officials obviously do, and they confront him. And it it seems like it wasn't just one time. But day after day, they're going to Mordecai. Dude, we have to bow before him. So do you. Start bowing, start paying homage. What's your problem, guy? Get along with the thing. Just pretend. Now we come across a slight textual issue in the here. The he told them could also be translated as it was told to them. And that second one seems to make a lot more sense. Remember chapter 2, what did Mordecai tell Esther? Don't tell anyone you're Jewish. He had a reason. And because he worked in the court, he probably knew that there was an anti Jewish sentiment within the court. Don't tell anyone. So I don't think Mordecai is the one who told this, but someone most likely found out somehow, and it was told to them. You want to know the real reason? Mordecai is a Jew. And now they have something on Mordecai. See, I don't think they're worried about the laws of the king. This is court intrigue. This is how do I get up on top of the other guy? How do I eliminate a competitor who previously has been of of good faith with the king and has revealed a plot against the king? I tell Haman, And Haman will get rid of Mordecai. And that's precisely what happens. They see an opportunity to advance themselves at the expense of Mordecai. And there's a bit of irony here because while Mordecai Mordecai wasn't trying to get ahead, but he was trying to be a faithful servant and serve the king, and, and but he told about the conspiracy to assassinate the king. And So there's a little irony at work here as we see it. But we see that God's people living in foreign lands often result in kingdom conflict and very practical sorts of matters. So don't be surprised when it happens. Prepare for it by knowing where you can budge and where you can't. Third and lastly, so to speak, Satan seizes opportunities to slaughter the seed and the saints. You see, Haman predictably is enraged. He is power hungry, he is self absorbed. In other words, it's like he's Xerxes' mini me. He's just like Xerxes from how he's portrayed here. He's angry. And he thought it too small, or he disdained it, to merely destroy Mordecai. But as the edict later says, he wants to destroy, to kill, to annihilate. Three different kinds of verbs, just so you get the point here. He wants them obliterated. And them would be all of Mordecai's people, the Jews. One man offends him, and he wants to obliterate a whole ethnic group. And he proposes this plan. Well, first he has his advisors, and they try to find out the best day for this plan. And so they cast lots to find the perfect time but we recognize that God determines the outcome. God is not asleep. Proverbs 16 indicates two things right next to each other. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. In other words, um, that, ain't more, that ain't Haman, because <laughs> he's quick to anger, okay? Okay. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And so the date that the slaughter will take place is of the Lord, even as it's also of Haman. Okay, That idea of concurrence that we've hit a number of times. But Haman cannot do this on his own, so he has to propose this to the king. And so he does, and he does it in such a way that it appeals to the paranoia of the king. And of course, Xerxes has reason to be paranoid. There have already been rebellions in some of his provinces that we've talked about. And there was, of course, the conspiracy to assassinate him by people within his own palace. And so, Haman is crafty, like the serpent. Uh, Haman doesn't identify this people group. Haman mentions some semblances of truth, but also tells some half-truths and lies. And it basically comes down to this. There are people here, and they're different than you. And they're difficult. And they're dangerous. So let me take care of them for you. That's what basically Haman is saying. And now, let's stop for a moment. Because if, if we're reading this from our perspective as 20th century Americans, we might be tempted to say, you know, that sounds interesting, but would that really happen? Within the Persian Empire, 522, the king died. And there was a man by the name of Smyrdus the Magus. Okay, Smirdis was his name. It's an odd name from our perspective. Magus was his caste. Okay, Persia was similar to India in that there was a caste system and, and people were put in things. If you don't understand that, watch the Allegiant series, okay? Um, and so he was one of the Magi. that sound familiar? He took the throne as his own, but not for long. And after he was deposed, all the Magi were killed. An entire caste within the government of Persia was eliminated. And not just that, but they instituted a festival, the Magaphonia, the killing of the Magi. And so annually, if, a, if there was a magi on the streets, you on that day, you were a dead man. And so they would go into hiding on that day until it was over. It's In a sense, it's like the Purge movies, those silly movies that you shouldn't probably watch. Um, that there's, the, the idea of the movie is that there's a, Uh, 12-hour time period in the United States of America in which it's okay to kill anyone or steal anything, commit any crime you want. It's like a freebie in order to get rid of the undesirables within the culture, so to speak, those that maybe the the, uh, justice system hasn't caught up with yet. And that's sort of what this was. And that's what his plan is, because he's not Haman is not sending the soldiers, the armies, to get these people. He's asking civilians to do it for him throughout the entire empire. And as if the different, difficult, and dangerous was not enough, he decides to throw in 10,000 talents of silver just to make sure that goes down pretty easily. 375 tons of silver. That'd be a whole lot of silver, folks. If we were to put it uh, in the, p- the prices on Wednesday when I calculated this in the U.S. market, that is $211 million. That's what it was worth to him to get rid of Mordecai and the Jews putting it in terms of their revenue, that would be about two-thirds of the annual tax revenue of the empire of Persia. That's a whole lot of money that he's willing to put. And, that, and many say that there's no way he had this kind of money, and it could have been that he was expecting to get a lot of it from the plundering of the Jews, which reminds us of Germany of how they would take every article of value, including gold fillings and teeth, from the people that they incarcerated and tried to kill, often successfully. So we see that foolish leaders are often persuaded to destroy God's people by agenda-driven groups or individuals. The edict here is released for the whole empire on the day before Passover. And so there's this question that will God act? Will he do what he did in Passover in preserving us from danger? But what's fascinating when we look at this is this statement the king and Haman sat down to drink, they're pleased with themselves. They're celebrating genocide. They're celebrating an unchangeable edict of the Persian king. There's no going back, there's no taking it back. It's going to happen. There's a finality to all of this. Okay? We seem to think that this is an exception to the history of the church. Between the years 54 and 304, 250 years, there were 10 different periods of persecution within the Roman Empire that covered 179 of those years. Brothers and sisters, you and I have lived in a privileged time. We see that... In contrast to the king and Haman, the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Everything seemed hopeless. Everything seemed lost. Not everyone apparently shared the views of Haman in all of this. Spurgeon somewhere else has written, "...the Lord sometimes suffers or permits His people to be driven into a corner." that they may experimentally know how necessary he is to them. Part of what's going on here is that they are being driven into a corner so they can realize how dependent they are on him. For 11 months, the sword is going to dangle over their necks. That, in a sense, that's the brilliance of his plan. Not only is he going to slaughter them, but first he's going to torture them emotionally. Because remember, irrevocable edict. It's dark. Because everything seems hopeless in this moment. As It's almost like the cliffhanger at the end of a, of a uh, season in a TV show. Who died? Some of you might be going right now, who did Nagin kill? That's what we're left to wonder. But I can't leave you there. That would be cruel. Okay? I want to remind you that Christ lived long under the shadow of the cross. It didn't arise out of nowhere, but he knew it was coming his entire life. It was always there. Jesus knows what it's like to live under a death sentence for years. And so he knows how to comfort his people when they live under a death sentence. He knows exactly what it's like to feel like the world comes undone. And he's able to help his people when their worlds come undone. The cross is intended to give us hope when we suffer. The Christian life is not simply one of blessing of the covenant received through Christ, but it is appointed to you not only to believe on Christ Jesus, but also to suffer for Him. Philippians 1.29 And so one aspect of that is that He can strengthen His frightened people. We also see, I think, that God delights in doing difficult things for His people. He reveals His strength to them. As I was walking yesterday, I was wondering, what reveals my strength to my children? And I thought, not much. They don't see it if I'm just pressing the button on the remote. Every once in a while, they get a glimpse of my strength as I open the jar that no one else can open in the house. That seems quite unimpressive. And so the movie Unbreakable came into my mind. Not the recent one, but the, the one with Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson, where Bruce Willis's character begins to wonder if that crazy comic book selling guy is right that he is a hero. And so he's in his basement, and there's his son, and he keeps telling his son, put on a little more weight. And amazingly, he's surprised to see that he can bench press it. And his son keeps putting on more weight, and his son is delighted to see the strength of his father. As the bar bends, but he still lifts that weight and presses it off of his chest. We are intended to be like that delighted son who sees the amazing strength of his father because he keeps delivering us from incredible things that we never thought we could get out of. There's no earthly hope. They can't run. This is the most powerful empire in the world. But the same one who who overcame Egypt is on their side. The same one who had slaughtered 186,000 Assyrians in one night is still on their side. They are once again going to see the power of the Heavenly Father for His beloved children, even though they don't quite know how are going to see it. And so between point A and point B, we are scared like you won't believe. Just like many African Americans are scared like we can't believe or understand when they see the blue lights go on behind them. But God makes a way for His people Let's hang on and see that in the weeks to come. But there are times when the long-standing conflict between uh, the seed and the serpent hit home. God permits wicked people to wield power. And God's people are called to make a practical and principled stand when there is a conflict between the kingdoms. But this only happens when we love God's kingdom more than we love the world's kingdom. And so when the empire strikes back, our suffering Savior strengthens His stricken people. So let's pray. Father, we thank You for qualifying us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. Thank You for rescuing us from the dominion of darkness and bringing us into the kingdom of Your Son because You love Him. Thank You for the redemption or the forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ Jesus. Help us, Father, when that battle seems so far off. Well, that seems so far off. Hits home unexpectedly when we see that our story is actually part of the bigger story, and help us to trust You because of Christ's work for us, when it is also appointed that we suffer for Christ and His glory. Strengthen us by the Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen.